0: I think all the stuff that the bootcamp teaches, anyone can just go and learn it for free on YouTube or just by picking up a book from a library or anywhere. Um, the problem, most of the time, is that most people they don't have they don't have you know the right approach of learning.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Iowa's Dev podcast. In today's video, we have Mohammed Azam with us. Mohammed is a Udemy instructor, a YouTuber, and he actually teaches web and iOS boot camps. I've seen that you've been diving really deep into Swift data, right?
0: Yes. I think Swift data is definitely very interesting. Anything related to data, at least for me, I found it to be very interesting. And I can always relate it to Realm framework, which is from MongoDB or any other ORM-ish kind of framework. Swift data is not really an ORM, but it's definitely feels that way so it's definitely interesting yeah
1: is that like the best part so far i think
0: it's still it's very early stages i found like a lot of different glitches or bugs in surf data right now so obviously i don't think anybody should be building their apps based on surf data i mean you there's some issues with the predicates and all that stuff going on so definitely it needs. I mean, it's it's still in beta version, so it will take some time to evolve. But it's it's definitely a good step in the right direction because it's much more simpler as compared to Core Data. But Swift Data does use Core Data behind the scene, underneath. But all that stuff is hidden from us, so that's good.
1: Yeah, it's good. Then I still haven't taken a stab at it yet because, as you said, it's still fairly new. So I might wait a little bit until it matures.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That's a good choice.
1: And how did you get into iOS development?
0: I think, I yeah, I got into iOS development probably around 2010. One of my colleagues, he's he like a really Apple fanboy, so he showed me iPhone and iPad, and he was always using a Mac. And I was a hardcore Microsoft person, like with oh, yeah. PC and everything. And then he said, okay, you can make money off your apps. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see how we can do that. So I just ordered the Mac just, you know, in front of him. And I created the app, like a kid's game in 10 days using iOS 3.2, I think. Objective-C, obviously. And uh, Cocos 2D framework. And the game was just for kids. Alphabets, you have to kind of like pop the alphabets that you see on the screen. And after that, I was kind of hooked. I created a lot of other games but then moved on to creating more of a different kind of app, like vegetable gardening app that was also featured by Apple. So that, yeah, so that was, that was fun. And that always interests me like iOS just, they, they just keep coming out with new stuff every WWDC. So it's always exciting.
1: Yeah. So you were doing it more in like your, your free time at that point. then did you transition into like a job or did you kept, you kept doing it as like a side hobby?
0: I did it for as a side hobby, but then I was a consultant. So I asked the company that, Hey, if you have any iOS project, I would love to work on it. So I was sent to some oil and gas companies in Houston, Texas, where I live. And I was able to work on number of, you know, iOS projects for very large oil and gas companies. So that was always fun. And I also worked with a retail company and finance company, all located in Houston on some iOS projects. So that was, that was also much, you know, fun.
1: What kind of apps do like oil companies need? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is it like internal stuff or was it? It's internal. Like, yeah. yeah. I
0: would say, yeah, it's mostly it's in, internal stuff. Yeah. It's just to keep track of their employees. They, they have like some pending requests that they do. So anytime you get a request, you have to do like, fill out the request, you have to send notification, receive notification. And with all of these oil and gas companies, obviously, security was always an issue. I mean, you you can't do notification on their Wi-Fi network, so I have to go outside on my own Wi-Fi network to check the notifications. So all of these security firewalls, they have to alter and edit to for make it to work. But yeah, most of the stuff that oil and gas companies, they did was obviously for their internet employees.
1: What caused the shift into more on like t- the teaching side of things?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always teaching one form or the other. I think back and even in 2002, when I actually came to us as a student, I was already writing some articles on .NET C sharp and all that stuff on CodeProject.com, where I was publishing articles. So I was teaching one way or the other. And then I started with YouTube or Publishing videos for other content providers. But I think probably around 2015 or so, I was contacted by a bootcamp, Iron Yard. And they said that, hey, if you want to teach iOS development, you can come and teach at our bootcamp. And I'm like, yeah, I would love to. And I taught iOS development over there, I taught web development. Then I transitioned into a different company called Digital Crafts, where I am right now. And I teach full stack web development for the last five or six years now. So it's definitely different, but it's fun because you, you know, you are basically changing or taking part in changing someone's life, you know, or their family tree at least. And you can see the result much quicker because when they get a job, that's, that's like, I think the perfect result for me at least.
1: Yeah. And. Now that you've been doing that for a while, can you tell like which students will will like succeed and which won't or is it like random? So.
0: No, I think I can definitely tell. I mean, I think students who are, you know, trying on their, on their own, even from the start and experimentation and not really giving up and they're just there, you know, every day they're just trying it out. They are, I mean, sometimes they do get frustrated, of course, that's fine. But they they at least try out at least 30, 45 minutes through an hour on their own, hitting all the all the brick walls and eventually finding a solution. And there are always these students who are working on their side projects, like some of them will learn something on the side, like they will learn Firebase on the side, they will learn some React stuff on the side or something else. So I think those are the, are the students that are... You know, they they tend to succeed more as compared to other ones.
1: Piggying back on that, do you think the biggest mistake people learning make is giving up when like they hit roadblocks?
0: I think maybe the biggest mistake is saying that okay, I will be able to you know put down this much amount and enroll in a boot camp, and then I will just not do anything. I will just coast, and after couple of months or four or five months, I will become a developer. So it doesn't really happen that way. Obviously, you have to come show up to work and work every day. I mean, that's like kind of like saying that you have a gym membership and you, don't, and you never go to the gym and you're, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to gain muscle or lose weight or whatever your goal is. So you, you have to just come every day. You, you have to, you know, be consistent. And when you hit a brick wall, that's fine. Try out different approaches. If it doesn't work, then obviously ask me, ask our TA that we have, or even post a question on Stack Overflow. Because eventually when you graduate, that is what you will be doing. You'll be posting questions on different forms. Try to be independent as early on as possible.
1: Yeah, that is, that is super important.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, le- learning how to problem solve like on your own.
0: Yes, yes. And breaking down the problem into much smaller chunks. I think that's some of the skills that eventually students will have to develop. You know, if you look at the problem, you sometimes get overwhelmed that, okay, this is such a big problem. How do I solve this? So I always tell them to break it down into much smaller pieces, like micro problems, and then solve those little problems. And then eventually, automatically, you will solve the big one.
1: I, I think that's like great advice, like in general, like in life, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: taking the big problems and just chunking them down into smaller pieces. And...
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a skill that eventually they will, they will develop, but it, it does take some time to develop those skills.
1: And do you have any different advice for, like, let's say I want to learn a particular topic, whether it's like core data or MVVM architecture or something like that, right?
0: Mm-hmm. I think practice obviously read the documentation watch the wwdc videos knowledge is always going to be your friend and the best way to learn is to just uh start building some app like you can build like a really simple to-do list or some things like that but the more features you're going to add to your app using that framework the more you will learn about that framework and all the limitations of that framework also so I mean, it is because, yeah, so I build, like, a lot of different prototypes because for the Udemy stuff, and when I'm building this, then so I started to see different patterns and different limitations, and then I have to adjust the architecture that I'm using. So that always helps, like, more practice, more code, reading good code also. So go on GitHub or Stack Overflow or wherever and read articles, read the code, and inspire you know, get inspired from the, from the good code that you see. And then, every day just improve a little bit. That's it.
1: And regarding Udemy, do you have any particular thought process when you go into creating a course?
0: First of all, of course I choose a topic, like let's say Swift data or ARKit and all that stuff. Uh, I don't really, I mean, I treat kind of like an outline of the topics that I want to discuss. And then, it's more of I'm I'm yeah I, I don't think I'm that organized in terms of that I'm gonna write all the lectures or write the script for it. I would I usually base all of my courses on the projects that I will be doing in the course. So I will create a project for a health app or you know some sort of an e-commerce application or something or a maps application, and then the course or at least a section of a course will be. Dedicated to that particular code base, so so I I don't really rehearse the lectures. I do have the code written on the side, of course, that I refer when I'm when I'm teaching. But I don't really write any script or anything. I just like to create courses on the things that I love. Sometimes those are new things like Swift Data, Reality Kit, and so I don't really have a very structured process for for creating these courses. Yeah.
1: And are you excited for the, the Vision Pro? <laughs> will, we see, will we see some Vision OS courses? Yeah, I was thinking of
0: Vision Pro. I don't know if it, Vision Pro will be part of the Reality Kit course, or will it be different? I'll have to, to see because I haven't really played around with it. I have obviously seen the videos of the, the Reality Kit that they have, or the Reality the Vision Pro headset that they have, and it looks very, very interesting. I don't really plan to buy it right now, but it's definitely when the SDK comes out. I definitely want to take some time to play around with it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Same here. Like I wanna. I really just want to see what it what it looks like, like what a basic project looks like in a Vision Pro.
0: Yeah, I think it it's definitely a step in the right direction. It will take probably another a decade or so for Apple to go through or refine their product because right now the Vision Pro, the device, the headset is not something that you can wear outside. You can't just walk around with it in your street or wherever. So I think if they have to eventually trim it down so much that it will be hard to distinguish between a Vision Pro device versus a normal glasses that you wear. So once they reach that particular scale, or, or that particular, you know, refinement, then it will be definitely more interesting to me at least.
1: And that's, that's crazy to think about because technology wise, that's very advanced, like,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: super. Like, (laughs) Like to just have like some glasses that do the basically, basically the same thing that a VR headset is doing or AR headset is doing.
0: Yeah. 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 Definitely very advanced technology.
1: Yeah. So you think we'll get there in 10 years?
0: maybe not maybe it will take more time yeah i mean it's no nobody knows but obviously these kind of (laughs) devices that that apple is they're in the right direction it's just the start of this reality stuff Mm -hmm. so we will hopefully see you know 10 maybe 15 maybe nobody knows but i think that will be an ideal point or tipping point of like okay this is now becoming very interesting because right now with that, the device that they have, it's really cool, and all the stuff that it does is really impressive, but it's not something that you can just, you know, wear it in public. Yeah. It's, it, you will just look really weird. So, <laughs> so yeah, hopefully, you know, after they refine their devices, and it can take a decade or two even, hopefully we'll get to see those things.
1: Yeah. And where do you think the, the future of iOS development is going? Do you think maybe the, the Vision Pro will play a role in that, or...?
0: I think the Vision Pro. I see it as kind of, kind of like a watch OS, or I kind of see it as as a watch device, which is like, okay, you you can have it. That's I mean you know some people will have it, some will not have it. Mm. Obviously, the price factor right now is very hard for everyone to 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 get that, which like what is it three thousand four hundred ninety nine or three thousand five hundred. That's that's just the initial release, I think. I think this can be the new direction that maybe in the future we won't even have our mobile devices, no iPhone, nothing. We will just have these vision pro devices, very slim down version. If we want to make a call, we'll just put our you know those earplu headphones in our ears and we'll just dial up. If it will be like a fake or an AR phone that we'll just dial the number or even just tell Siri to dial the number and then that will be it. So maybe that's the destination we will eventually reach. Obviously, it's gonna take a lot of time.
1: And how about in terms of iOS development?
0: iOS development, I think it's moving, it's moving along. I mean, with the Swift data, Swift UI, definitely Swift UI has changed the game. Now you can create your application much more quicker using Swift UI. Swift data is also a really good step in the right direction. I don't think that Apple will invest time in creating some sort of a hybrid kind of a framework or a cross-platform framework so that it can run on Android devices. I don't think Apple cares that much about Android or even the web. We're definitely moving along. I'm not sure what else I want to see in iOS development. Maybe a little bit more advanced testing framework, so you can test your yourSIF UI views. Maybe that is something good to add. I think they' keep on adding the machine learning stuff, like create ML and all that stuff, so that's always good. So they are moving slowly, but you know consistently they are moving in, in the right direction. Yeah.:
1: Is there anything that you miss from UIKit?
0: I don't think I miss anything from the UI kit. The only thing I was missing from UI kit was kind of like the map, maps and you know, creating overlays on the map. But I believe they have added that stuff in CIF UI for iOS seventeen. But apart from that, yeah, I don't remember that I was ever dealing with UI Kit stuff. most of the stuff that SIF UI provides is actually more than enough.
1: Yeah, I've been this past few months I've taken a deep dive into Swift UI. And before I was working mostly on UIKit, and Yeah, for the most part like Swift UI has has like almost everything you would need. And then j it's just like small things. Maybe like, I think like that Safari view controller. I okay. had to yeah. use a view representable. But other than that, like Swift mm. UI has pretty much all that everything, humor. yeah. There are
0: some yeah. glitches that I talked about on Twitter, like Clearing text boxes or text field when those are bounded to a number, they're not clearing it up. So those kind of things, those glitches are still there, I think from since the first version. so those are a little bit annoying. but I mean I know people have like they have like workarounds for those glitches, but hopefully it will improve. They are you know adding some stuff to it, like they added macros model and observation stuff in iOS 17, Um, I'm not, I don't know if it's the right direction or not, but it's definitely makes things simpler. Again, there are some glitches over there that you can't really bind to environment stuff unless you use bindable. So that's kind of annoying. I think that's just a glitch or a bug, but hopefully those things will get fixed.
1: What would you say the best cross-platform for development is? I think the two comes
0: to mind are uh, React Native and Flutter. I have worked with both. I like Flutter more because Flutter, I mean, it's more of a natural kind of like a cross platform. It's easy to get started. It's very, very similar to actually both of them are very similar to Swift UI and Flutter. They kind of like recreate the controls from scratch. So they are not going to render a UI text field in iOS and a a different text field on Android. They recreate it from scratch using Flutter, using Dart, or whatever the underlying framework is, like whatever, C++ or something. They use that to recreate those controls. So that is why they always get like 60 frames per second. But I I like Flutter. I think it's a a good choice for cross-platform applications, definitely.
1: That's good. I only have like a little experience in React Native and coming from solely native development to to something like React Native was very interesting. Very interesting.
0: Me. Definitely, yeah.
1: Because you had to like use the like the cocoa Pods. Yes. To yep. initialize the, the project. It was very strange. Let's say an indie developer. Should they go just iOS native or platform?
0: I think indie developer would benefit more if their application is native because then they can use all the different features, all the power, the performance stuff provided by the actual framework because most of the indie developers, well, I guess all of the indie developers they are making their revenue, they are making their money through the use of their apps. So your app has to be you know, best looking, it has to be very high performance, and you can get that from native frameworks. And as you said, companies, most if they're working on internal apps or if their primary mean is not to make revenue through the apps but it's more of a medium to share or display information, then cross-platform will work for them because they already have the resources, like C Sharp developers for Xamarin or JavaScript developers for React Native. So it makes sense for them to go with the cross-platform route instead of the native.
1: I watched one of your recent talks on MVVM and SwiftUI. Mm -hmm. So why should people stop using MVVM?
0: I think the main issue is that it doesn't really provide any benefit. When you create another layer of view models, and I did that for three years. I created another layer of view models, but they were just adding code. They were not really providing any benefits. If you also look at Apple's implementation of their projects, they are not, I mean, they are in some cases calling some stuff view models, but they're not creating an extra layer for view models. So my talk was mainly about my experience with working with SwiftUI since 2019. And I keep running into issues with creating separate view models for every view. That was just adding more and more code without any benefits. And eventually I learned that the view itself, which you have in Swift UI, is actually also a view model. But obviously that does not mean that you should just start putting everything inside the view. That's not what the talk is about. You should still separate your code depending on the client server app. You can, you can create a model, which I like to call aggregate model. Some people like could call it data store, which can get the information from the service using HTTP client and then just give it to the, to the view, and that's it. So no view models are required. And the, the nice thing to see now when I propose this, well, not an idea because it's not really my idea, when I proposed this like a year ago, there was a lot of backlash ab- about this. That hey, you, this, I don't think that's correct, and blah, blah, blah. But now, moving for, uh, like one year after, you know, I tweeted about it and I published about it. now I see a lot of people moving and talking, at least talking about it. So a lot of people are moving into that direction. And a lot of people are also talking that, okay, you know what? I have all this code and view models that doesn't make any sense. So what should I do? So I think it's it's nice that people are experimenting and people are at least critically thinking about the SwiftUI architecture instead of just blindly accepting what other people are doing. That's what I did. I just blindly accepted that, okay, this is the architecture I want to use and I have to use, but I was, I was wrong. But yeah, so I talked about it on my blog about the MV pattern or, you know, much simpler pattern that you can use If your application works with MVVM, that's, that's fine. I I think I just find it to be unnecessary to create all those different layers of view models when they don't really provide any benefits.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've had a similar experience in a way since when I moved to Swift UI at first I'm like, oh, view model, view model, view model. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: But, but I'm currently working on a project where most of the information is like on a data store. And it's, yeah, it's a lot like cleaner, like the code, like the, you don't have a bunch of random view models that are doing like one thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Especially I think, I mean, I I mostly talk about the client server architecture. So I, I, I use a very different approach in that, which I call aggregate model or data store It's the same thing. If I'm using core data, I would have a different kind of architecture. If I'm using not Core Data and not HTTP client or client-server, then it will be very it, it will be a little bit different, kind of like the Scrum Dinger app from Apple. So that's a, that's also like a MV architecture that they have. It, it all ties up to the source of truth, and I think that's the most important part. You only add observable objects when you have a source of truth has changed, and that's it. So we have to just keep that, those things in mind when we are creating these, SwiftUI applications.
1: What architecture would you recommend for the core data? So
0: I played around with Active Record for for core data or a variation of Active Record, and I wrote about it. The problem that I faced with completely going hundred percent Active Record is if you add save functions, and we can take an example of Swift Data because that's now the the future direction, I guess. The problem with having save function, which I try to do inside your models so that you can say customer.save and it's saved. Nice and simple, easy to read. The problem with, the, with those things is that you still need the model context to save that. So you need to provide your model with the model context. And you can, which is fine, I mean, you can create like a kind of like a global model context and create that property anywhere in your application. The problem with that approach is that if you want to preview data, then it becomes harder. So Apple in their application, I think it's called Backyard Birding or Birding Backyard, something like that. They are kind of using a variation of active record pattern, but they don't really save the stuff inside the model, which makes sense. So they use... To save the stuff, or they're saving the stuff right inside the view by calling context.insert or context.save. And I think that might be the right approach to go for surf data applications. Instead of moving everything into the save, into the model, just have the logic in the model. Like if you have any business logic, yeah, put it in the model. Don't put it in the view, put it in the model. You can test it out. But the save functions. You know all those thing queries and all that stuff. You can put it in the view. That's fine. So it's it's very hard to explain because it's a variation of active record, but it's not one hundred percent active record.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll take a look into that. And you said there's a bl- you have a blog on it, right?
0: I have a blog on client server applications. Let me see. I have a blog post on client server applications. So it I don't think it covers the core data part. But that usually revolves around, that's a very long blog post. It actually talks about the architecture and other things that I learned over the course of three years when you're building Swift UI applications.
1: Is that the biggest or more surprising thing you learned in like the three years of Swift UI, or has anything else stood out?
0: I think those are the big things that are discussed in the article, like building large scale application using Swift UI. Those were definitely the big things that I learned. Because when SwiftUI came out in 2019, I started using it. And I was actually the one who was also following MVVM and I was doing all that stuff. And created a lot of apps using MVVM and all that stuff. But it was just never, I was never comfortable. It's like you're writing too much code. It's just unnecessary stuff. And after a lot of research, talking to a lot of other developers, they or not a lot of developers, but at least developers who were facing the same issues, we all kind of agree that this is not the right path. This is not what the Apple is advocating because you start losing the simplicity of the CIF UI framework, what it's giving you. So, So we have to be careful when we are using an architecture. We just have to make sure that we are not writing unnecessary code because in the end, code is not an asset, it's a liability. The more code you write, you're creating those liabilities. So less is always more, I think sometimes what I've seen is people get confused when they see such less code and working, they say, okay, this cannot be right because it's so less code. <laughs> so I have to make it more complicated so I can call myself a senior <laughs> senior developer. So I'll let me add interceptors, <laughs> let me add coordinators, let me add dependency injection, let me add a bunch of other stuff so I can call myself senior developer. But I think the ultimate sophistication is the simplicity. So if you can make it simple, for everyone to understand, I think that's the most hard part.
1: Yeah, I think there's a quote out there like anyone can make anything complicated; it's making it simple. It's,
0: that's the hard part. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and
0: what what I've learned is that when Apple designs the UI, they actually want you to use in a particular way. You can go about and using it any way you want, but then then you will have to, you know, you will be kind of like trapped and then you will have to oh I have to do this, I have to do dependency injection. So those kind of things the if you want to use UI, just use ui in a way that Apple is telling you to use ui I think there was a really good talk for NS Spain where they were talking about I think it was SoundCloud team that they also use like Viper and View Models and all that stuff. And and Apple said, well, your app is like 10 times slower, so fix that. We cannot publish it to the App Store. And then they said, okay, and then they just use the fetch request and all those things that are provided by Apple, and then it was very fast. Because because sometimes I think we don't understand that these things that Apple is providing you, like the fetch request property wrapper for core data, and I think the query property wrapper for SIF data, They're very optimized for working with SwiftUI. So if you're not using that and you're using NSFetch results controller, like the old stuff for core data, then you will have to pay the price. I mean, you will have to write all the code. And and it's not little code. It's a lot of code that you have to type on your own. So instead of recreating the stuff that Apple has already done for you, just use the stuff that Apple has provided you and use that in your app.
1: That's, that's really good advice. (laughs) I'm going to keep that in mind while I'm making my projects. Yep. And what advice would you have for aspiring iOS developers? I think just start
0: learning something every single day. I mean, you know, and practice it by, by writing code. So write a lot of code. Sometimes your code will obviously not be good, that's fine, just make it work, try to improve it, but every single day try to try to do something, try to learn, okay, I'm gonna learn core data, I'm gonna learn how to insert into core data, how to update, how to to navigate, create apps, learn, read articles, get knowledge from videos, articles, blogs, tweets, whatever, and try to just try to focus on whatever time you can give 45 minutes to an hour on pure learning, just learn, practice, practice and practice. And that's it.
1: That's really good advice. And what are your thoughts on bootcamp versus no bootcamp?
0: I think all the stuff that the bootcamp teaches, anyone can just go and learn it for free on YouTube or just by picking up a book from a library or anywhere. The problem most of the time is that most people they don't have willpower to you know or what's the right word? They don't have, you know, the right approach of learning, you know. So they're not learning every day, they will skip a couple of days, they will skip this, they will not learn this, they will not understand this. When they hit a brick wall, they will give up, they don't know how to answer, ask a question online. All right. So those are the problems that people will face. But all the content that I teach or any boot camp teaches, anyone can just pick up a book from anywhere or watch the videos and they can learn it. I think boot camp gives them structure. I think that's what it gives you. It gives you structure so that you have every day from nine to five or whatever that time you have for four months. You have to be doing the project. You have to be doing the assignments. You are in a group of people who are doing the same. So you will form those friendships and then you will learn from them also. And then you have access to the instructor and the TA who will have more knowledge because they have already learned this stuff and they can answer your question much quicker than you know you searching or try to post a question online. So that's, I think, the biggest difference between bootcamp and just going independent. I mean, I think anyone can... Learn anything online, but most people don't because they don't have that structure in their life. So it gives you the boot can give you structure and access to the instructors.
1: Yeah, I think those those two are like the the main things like the structure it gives you, and like the consistency of you're you're gonna be there or you have to be there, like for a certain amount of time every day or at least whatever however the boot camp is set up. So it'll probably, it'll really depend on the person. Like, do you, do you feel like you are structured and disciplined enough to do it on your own or will you need a bootcamp? Sure. Yep. Moving along then, do you use the chat GPT at all? Well, for what you're programming or?
0: Yeah, I do use chat GPT programming. Sometimes I do use it for sometime writing YouTube description for my videos or writing even the title for my Udemy courses or description for Udemy courses, writing some sort of a corporate emails, using it for creating small exercises for my students. So if they're learning JavaScript and they're learning arrays in JavaScript or list, I will just ask ChatGPT to create 20 exercises or 20 questions, small questions related to arrays in javascript so it will just write that i'll give it to my students so they can practice more so definitely i definitely enjoy chat gpt
1: how do you think that ai and these like large language models will impact like ios development
0: I don't know I mean, how it will impact, I think eventually we will start seeing in Xcode integration with these AI stuff. So you might be writing HTTP layer or a call to some web service and Xcode will suggest that, hey, I can actually do it for you. So, I mean, is this what you're asking? And then it will just write the whole thing for you. So I think those integration will be coming in later years. For iOS, I don't, yeah, for any kind of a developer kind of a thing, I don't think their jobs are in trouble because now ChatGPT can write code because (laughs) writing code is one thing, but you have to understand the code also. So that is, I mean, if a person doesn't understand the code, then it may work. You can copy paste it, but if you want to change it, then it's going to be a problem because now you don't understand what's going on. So you have to obviously understand the code that ChatGPT is Giving you so that you can eventually change it, maintain it, and you know things like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's like a super powerful tool that can make iOS developers like even more productive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I sometimes I mean I use it for you know if I'm stuck somewhere, I want to convert something from somewhere, or especially for date time operations. I will just ask ChatGPT. Okay, how do I format this part? How do I convert from here to there? And uh, most of the time, it's able to give answers. Sometimes it obviously doesn't really have the knowledge to do those things, but it can definitely help guide me in the same, in the in the right direction at least sometimes. Yeah. yeah.
1: Have you used the GitHub Copilot?
0: I have used it very briefly, so I I don't think I've used it enough to yeah. to do anything with that. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, I was. I brought it up because I'm waiting for. Hopefully, Apple does something similar because it's pretty cool that like the the autofill part. Like I feel like it, it saves a bunch of time.
0: Yes. Like, yes. Like yes. if
1: you're writing like something, I don't know, maybe like a for loop or something very basic, that it can just autocomplete for you. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to speak on or talk about?
0: No, I think I think we covered we covered a lot of stuff. I will be in New York for Tri Swift conference. I'll be doing a workshop over there for a create ML, which is the machine learning in iOS. So yeah, if any of your viewers or listeners are out there, come and hang around. That's gonna be fun.
1: Thank you, Mohammed, for coming on the show. So where can the viewers and listeners follow you and find you?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at azamsharp, a z a m s h a r p, and you can also visit my website azamsharp.com.
1: Thank you for being on the show, and thank you guys for tuning in. See you. See you guys next time.